everyone. Here uh, is the eventual, eventual and virtual Sunday sessions of 12th of July 2020. Well, thank you for joining us for this eventual Sunday sessions. Uh, this is a time when we explore subjects related to tree law, OM, water law, the she, woodland tree and garden sanctuaries, and even a side dish of bardic storytelling and poetry. And today I'm going to wander through the stories and traditions of dragons, snakes and serpents and someone's already on the phone about it. Uh, please let me know uh, in the comments, are you actually hearing me okay? That we not got the tech problems, that you are getting the audio, that you are getting uh, the video. Now, in this session, uh, I intend to cover for you the, um, the fire serpents, water serpents, and even going on to the sky serpents, and even onto the serpents uh, within us. Now I'm going to go a bit worldwide uh, with the serpent traditions, but also relating them to some of our local stories too, because I did start this off as uh, the Celtic. Now I'm just going to check the comments to make sure that you're actually loud and clear here. Uh, let's see, we've got Donna here. Good morning. And you actually from New Mexico. Are you, is, are you hearing and seeing? Please let me know in the comments that you're hearing and seeing okay, because I was having a little bit of a complication with that. Please uh, let me know. And um, good day, video and audio working very well. Great to know. So that means I can carry on with absolute confidence. There we go. There's a familiar thing that you might know. Have I got the right thing? What is a dragon? Uh, in the West, we regard them as fire-breathing, four-legged, uh, and with wings. Uh, that's quite an interesting one I've got there anyway. So we've got sort of like the two of them. And one of the things I'm really going to be going into, uh, well, in the East, let's try that. In the East, they've got uh, no fire, no wings, and uh, they're four-legged. They're highly intelligent and very wise. But in the West, the monsters and serpents well, they're tamed by heroes in stories. And uh, I'm going to be going into that because that's a very important part of, of this session. Uh, they can, uh, we've got one, this, this was one that was actually in Hazelwood in Sligo and it eventually came ashore. I'm going to show you a picture of that uh, coming ashore quite soon, I think. Now, the dragons and serpents, as we hear them in stories, they live in caves and they, they kind of, there's a fire-breathing one. And, uh, oh, there's a water one. And uh, there's a man who uh, is taming snakes. And, uh, wow, that's one uh, that's got hoarding and treasure and looking after it and kind of keeping people away and breathing fire onto anybody that gets near but in the east the dragons are the power over rain and water and uh fiery dragons and serpents today well they seem to be 
uh, our Western influence. And I'm going to explain perhaps how they came into here. But I think a lot of the inspiration of our Western stories, they come from dinosaur skeleton discoveries where people, early archaeologists, it looks as if they thought they had discovered dragons. Now, where does the dragon name come from? I'm going to talk a bit about this with a story, a local story a bit later on. But the word draken itself means scaly. And in fact, I might as well go straight on to this, uh, the local story. And it's about, uh, well, it's about the Fomorians. Uh, you might have heard the Irish myth stories of the Fomorians who were sea people uh, who were said to be very aggressive. And one of the things they did was come ashore and they would lure the Tuatodon on women and uh, they would approach them. Uh, somehow they knew how to extract gold ore or maybe they traded. They had gold rings anyway and they would try and lure these uh, that they would lure to these gold rings and they would mate with them and uh, if they had daughters then the daughters would stay on the land with their mothers they would look after the land they were the farmers they would stay behind but the boys now the boys if they uh well they would grow and when they became teenagers they would be grabbed by their fathers taken out to sea and they would be part of the all-male community that were out at sea, the Fomorians, and it said that at that time the country of Iceland was all men uh, because they never took the women with them. But uh, Gronja at that time, she had lost her previous mate and she was now by the story that she was really the chieftain, a sort of semi-goddess, but she was in charge of herself, in charge of her life, and she wasn't going to take any of this nonsense uh, from Draken. Um, so they go into a battle. And of course, as Irish battles go, a lot of them are three days. And this was a three-day one. At the end of the three days, with this mighty Draken, let's see if I can pull him up again. There he goes. Uh, managed to knock off his head, knock off his, uh, took off his arms, and uh, buried his head and then got the arms and put them into a cross over the head so they would rise out of the soil, become a nuisance and kind of terrorize women uh, that were around. And uh, that turned into quite some important symbolism because that became the Ulster flag, uh, the old Ulster flag. So you got the skeleton with the cross of the bones and the Knights Templar when they were escaping and coming over the waters, some of them too here, when they were on the water, they had the Jolly Rouge flag, which was their navigation flag that they would raise to give them protection on the water, protection on the sea. And that was the skull crossbows in a, a gold color, I gather, and it had a red background. And that eventually got adopted by the, uh, the British Royal Navy, who took that flag, made the gold skull, crossbones, white, black background. And that was in response to save our souls. So if the Navy put that flag up on the ship, they were off on a rescue mission uh, of some form. And of course, that will change with Errol Flynn and Hollywood when somehow, and I don't know why, they changed that flag into being a pirate flag. And that's how we sort of recognize. So that's a, a brief story 
of uh, the skull and crossbones. Anyway, <laughs> so move on. There's the back to the Drecken, uh, no, back to the Groener uh, kind of artist impression. Now, the, uh, uh, true enough, the early St. George stories uh, of killing the dragon, he was actually killing the dragon because of the concern that the dragon was devouring women rather than, you know, we were saying about uh, how dragon devoured women and tempted them in order for the offspring. And there you have in that painting a very devoured woman on the left there. I, I love that one. So she's being re uh, really devoured. Uh, but let's go on to snakes. Here's a snake. And I think no, uh, most of us know this and we've seen snakes, even people in Ireland, somehow they've seen snakes. Well, the reason they've seen snakes, um, well, I'll come on to that in a moment, but uh, I think it's fair to bring this up because this is more in, on topic. Because what people don't realize is that one out of 10 uh, snake breeds carry venom, only one out of 10. And the interesting thing is that these venom carriers, they're actually seem to be the most shy of all snakes, very shy of humans anyway. But we may ask, um, well, I must put this up. This is a very unshy snake. There you go. You can have a, a snake that will charm you rather than being charmed. Uh, but what is a serpent? As I showed earlier, there was that sort of dragony serpent coming ashore in Hazelwood. There it is when it came ashore. And uh, the word serpent, it's really a bold snake. It's really when we want to talk about snakes as rather than a cute wiggly thing as something that's bold, fury, and has a presence. And it comes from the Latin word serpens, which is really a, um, just means crawling animal. And, but the snake itself in many stories is of fertility. There's a lovely carving there. Uh, that itself could be a session just to uh, explain that. But in more modern stories, is regarded the snake is regarded as being sinful. And uh, when we think of the sinful, uh, looking in the Webster's New World Dictionary, a snake is described as a treacherous and deceitful person. And even a serpent, that gets even more complex, a sly, sneaky, and also a treacherous person too. And then we have the forked tongue. I think we have a forked tongue here. Yeah, there we go. Snake with a forked tongue. And symbolically, that is uh, going in two directions. And that's often interpreted as say one thing, do another. A deceitful person, man with forked tongue, all that type of thing. Whereas, uh, really, so why do snakes have? Uh, it's quite a discussion of why do snakes have a forked tongue. And for what I understand, they actually breathe with their tongues. And the fascinating thing is that they can breathe in two directions at once and then simulate that to understand their location and uh, what's going on. One thought that I have uh, at this point is um, that uh, that's the famous story, the Adam and Eve story, uh, an artist's representation. As I read this, and maybe you've thought this as well, that when this story happened, it, well, it's a very symbolic story. I, it seems as if the actual concept of Satan hadn't formed yet in Adam and Eve's time. Uh, there are various biblical stories of the temptation, the fall of man. 
But from some storytellers, the original Garden of Eden story didn't feature mortal women and snake seducers. The mortal woman Eve was a mother creator goddess. And the serpent was actually a consort. Uh, it certainly wasn't, or her wasn't an evil creature. I suppose uh, being a consort, I'm assuming to the goddess is a he, but not an evil creature, but some source of wholeness. And uh, in, I think in previous sessions, if not, you'll be getting it from me around between so on and mid-winter. The story of the Monocoracune, Monori Gronia, a lot of you know as the Morrigan, and the Doida, the Dagda. And the Dagda story there, where he meets the three hags. Here I tell the story of meeting the hags by the well. And there's the association, I'm going to talk a lot this, about this, the water association with uh, dragons, serpents and snakes. And these three hags lead him into the Kesh Koran, the hill of Kesh. And in the center of there, there's a legend of a mystical and very transforming lock. And the doider itself, and I will tell the story in detail, but briefly, the way it's told is as if he is the snake. He is the snake there, helping the fertility of the womb of the monocorcuan uh, of the Morrigan. But I'll go on uh, because from the east where the water stories are very abundant, we do have the stories of the, um, the Buddhist stories. And here we have a sort of Buddha character. And he's actually, on a, it looks like he, if he's on a pot, but uh, in the actual story, he will be supported sitting on a big, massive, coiled, triple-headed serpent. And the serpent would raise up, uh, the multi-headed uh, serpent would uh, raise up and um, would protect the Buddha from all elements so that he would be able to meditate in quietness, wouldn't be disturbed by the rain, wouldn't be disturbed by the wind, uh, would be in a total meditation. I'm going to talk a lot uh, about that serpent a bit later. So we have uh, a triple coid serpent. Let's see what we got here. Um, I regard serpents as being symbolic of guarding sacred spaces. Now, you may regard sacred spaces yourself as being the temples, uh, the stone circles, the cairns. But to me, as you'll know from previous uh, sessions, I regard the sacred spaces as being our heritage trees. Now, rattlesnakes. Uh, if, if I haven't got some rattlesnake picture. But if you've ever approached, a, have the privilege of approaching a rattlesnake, they're not shy. They're not totally shy, but they don't immediately attack either. What they do is they rise up and they hold their ground. And they're like the dragon that's protecting their sacred space. And there's no way they're going to retreat. They won't pounce. They wait to see if you'll be a threat. But they are. They hold firm, don't retreat. And I think uh, from that snake and other snakes that do similar, that's where we get the stories of the guarding of the treasure. And there's a dragon there who's holding his own, guarding the treasure. Now, the, uh, I talked about perhaps the fire dragon came from medieval times, but there is an older story 
of the alien Trekham. And this origin uh, is varied. Uh, that uh, Sometimes it's uh, a creature with multi heads like the Naga, which is uh, the Hindu. Or, or it's a child, maybe a woman, a, a girl that was born with multi snake heads. Obviously, it's a, a story that's been adapted from the Medusa. And so it's told in various ways. But anyway, whatever it is, it's a fiery being that enters the Ornagot cave uh, at Rathcron in Roscommon. And there's various stories told of how that connects up with the caves here, caves of Keish, and uh, through an underground dry tunnel, uh, a dry line, as some people say, rather than being a water line, rather than being an underground stream. And so the, the poor being who was in the Ornagot cave and was shooting fire to protect the people hunting, because the reason the creature, whatever it is, a child or animal, went into the cave because it was being hunted and being killed because it's said to be a destroyer of crops, destroyer of life, and had to be banished. And so this creature found its way up to the caves of Keish and up into the waters in the middle there maybe of the caves and became the, oh, I forget the actual name. And so many times I talk about that. The, um, oh boy, it's the, the fire that comes up inside this mythical lock inside the mountain. Uh, Fluctor, the Fluctor fire that warms up the water and warms it up and then the Doida is bathing in it. And as it warms up, Doida becomes very much at one with the Monocoracu and this is the womb inside the mountain. And through that womb, uh, new life is born. Uh, a wonderful story if you've heard me actually say that. And uh, there are other stories that this fiery being, uh, the Fluctor, actually moves on from there and goes up to the Navan Fort, uh, the Emamaka, uh, which is very much stories of the symbol of fire. And that fire, uh, there was a new boldness where it was a fire of fear in Ornagot becomes a fire of standing ground. Let's go back to the old dragon here. There we go. Eliminating the warriors um, because there's a lot of stories of dragons and serpents, uh, early stories of breathing out fire to get rid of the now i wonder i hoped i had a picture of a, a white snake and this is very good uh, in the fertility yeah there we are they have a a white snake and i think that's a variation in that uh let's go back to the waters here to tell a bit more of the story because it at instead of in bulk this fertilized water and as with any womb uh, the water breaks, and when the water breaks, it said that uh, the, the rivers of Ireland were formed when these first broke, and they would wiggle through the land, and they would create the river, and, and what the serpents were that were first born with this, they were, there's a medieval depiction there, they were these women that were white snakes that would wriggle through the landscape, and the water would follow them uh, through there and uh, and then from there you've got the water would be warm it would be warmed it would become the clouds and the clouds would then be the rain and you've got the whole stories of the dragon rain in the east because the dragons there are there to attract the rain and attract the water they go down the swallow holes and there you've got the cycle starting 
all over again. Um, now, the, the female wise thing, just known as the bringer of rain to the crops. And, and the thing with this uh, female, let's go back to her again. Um, is she there? Come on back. There we go. Uh, that uh, the story is that each of these white snakes that carve the rivers or look after the rivers of Ireland and around the world, they have this dream of manifesting into a creature that will do good. And the snakes themselves are dreaming to become goddesses themselves. That's the way the flow of the story goes. Anyway, let's see if uh, what's before I get to the next bit, let's see who's here and what you're saying. Um, hello from Denver, Colorado. Hello, Stephanie. Uh, we got all the lovely one. Then we got uh, Sheil here. Great. Uh, you can hear loud and clear. I'm glad you're here. Donna's here. Thank. Nice to see you here. Very clear. Nice to hear. Uh, fascinating. The best is yet to come, I think. I'm just warming up. Uh, and good morning to you, Sandra. And hi, Margie. Lovely to see you all around. So I'm going to move on from here because we're going to get to the real meaty stuff on this. Now, where was I? Uh -huh. um, right. Uh, we'll go back to the waters here. And we have the white snake there. And really, what does that say to you? What does that uh, this? Hello, Margie. Yes. Um, right. Here, where you go. Now, back to that one. We hear, you know, people are fear, afraid of snakes. And they're afraid of the whole damnation of snakes and of the venom and the poison. But more than anything, and I think we've lost this, except in the medical profession, house snakes are a symbol of healing. And they're a symbol of healing much more than they are of poison. And there's something to read there. There are only one in 10 species of snakes are venomous, and most of those venomous ones are very shy. They keep out of the way of us humans. But symbolically, the one thing I really love is how snakes represent our expanded consciousness. So any Reiki people amongst you there, you'll understand this with the Kundalini and uh, the chakras. Uh, and even the snake symbol itself is an elixir of life and immortality. It's a, the symbol of snake is our, I wouldn't say surrender, but it's our opening to our elixir of life. And life itself is immortal. We may be mortal bodies, mortal water, but what's within us is immortal. And by understanding, it's like a divine intoxication. And I think going on to, I think I'll stay with that symbol because at this point when we think of healing as well as your chakras, we think of herbal knowledge. And the best herbal knowledge we have is from our sense of consciousness. Uh, not from reading books and making identities. And when we have a consciousness and we rely on our senses when we're out amongst plants and we haven't got a book with us, that's when our snake wisdom comes forth. And when it comes forth and we understand something that will benefit us either in health or even to make us help us to make us clearer and wiser, that's when we would feel that our wisdom is closest 
to the divine. So the divine aspects of we have with the serpent, we have the aspects of being underground uh, between the roots of plants and giving them life. And I love that one because that's the water getting in amongst the uh, amongst the roots. But then we have the water ones and moving into the sea serpents here. Um, the hydrophidiae, is that what it's pronounced? Hydrophidae, hydrophidae, the water serpents. And Leviathan is probably the most famous that people uh, know. It's from Jewish tr tradition, a reflection of Lotan. Uh, you might know the stories of Baal, and Lotan was unfortunately defeated by Baal. I'm not sure about these serpents being defeated. Uh, a, a bit of a, mm, I have a bit of a thing about that. And there are the lake serpents, and most of us have heard about the Loch Ness Monster, haven't we? But the one I love, and I'll move on to this, is... Um, have I missed something? Oh, yes, here we go. The Ouroboros, the serpent. The serpent that forms a ring, and it shows continuity. Uh, we recognize this in our seasons and in our cycles, and this is drawn up as a serpent that forms a ring, and has its tail in its mouth. Sometimes people say it's always chasing its tail, it's always in its mouth. But there we have that bonded cycle. It's not a snake in a straight line. It's a bonded cycle. And there's incredible wisdom, as I've often said in some of these sessions, when we interpret things that we see and we sense as a cycle, uh, as um, that, that uncoils uh, the, so if we think of cycles or uncoined, one of the great examples is the procession of equinoxes uh, in astrology, where the uh, the place that the vernal equinox crosses the, the equator each year is, I think it's a few degrees to the west, and it takes nearly 25,000 years before it comes back to the same point again. So you've got this spiral. So it's the concept of looking at stuff in circles which is simple, but really everything seems to be in a spiral. We see that in trees. And this, uh, the Milky Way here is a lovely shot of the Milky Way, said to be an illuminated vision of this whole cycle. And then the Milky Way is often described as the dragon's head following its tail. And all those stars there is the illumination of the scales of the Ouroboros serpent. Lovely uh, concept. Now I'm going to move on to the astrology a bit because um, the symbol of totality of existence, the symbol of infinity and the cyclic nature of the cosmos. How does the astrology charting help us with this? Well, I think um, this is something that's ignored. It's very big with Eastern astrologers, but Western astrologers tend to ignore the nodes. And Eastern astrologers, it's the whole, it's where it all starts from. But in Western astrology, it seems, there's the node symbols, there we go. It's, it's really something that's avoided. I think a lot of astrologers in the West, they get kind of tied into the Jungian style of analysis of birth charts. And then they, they map out life and uh, interpretation around that. It's, I find this a little bit mechanical. But the, what I find with these nodes, that should be the starting point because they are the, a kind of a map of our story path. And they have the, the south node, the tail. 
sometimes described by people as our past karma. But to me, that's home. That's the starting base. And some people might say that the, the home is the whole consciousness of the womb place, from the womb. And I relate the South Node to our umbilical cord that's connected to the womb realm. Uh, and I'll take this away for a second because I tell the local story here, uh, the Moana Korakua, and if anybody's read uh, from the Oma's Tale of the Trees, Lush the Rowan, I go into that about how we're umbilically connected to the one beautiful woman uh, that provides the life. And I feel that we're always umbilically connected uh, to that. And that is always our base point. Um, but the North Node can be described as our future karma or karma to be dealt with. But I relate to this North Node here uh, as that's our story. That's our adventure. And that's our wilding. Now, I could, I would love to do a whole session on nodes if I could, but that would have a limited appeal, I think. But it's a fascinating thing. Anyway, let's go, as soon as we're with astrology constellations, here we go. Largest constellation in the sky, Hydra. The story there is the Hydra, the serpent that was thrown into the sky by Apollo during an angry session. And... Uh, and then there's another one, and I couldn't find a picture, Serpents. And uh, Serpents uh, is a constellation of a tamed snake and uh, by, uh, that was kept by Orpheus. Have I pronounced that right? I'm not sure. Anyway, it's fascinating uh, that in Hindu culture that a snake cannot be tamed. And there we have a picture of the multi-headed Naga. It's, an, it's actually an Eastern symbol for freedom. Because there you've got the choice, lots of heads, choices of directions. We're not entirely mapped out. We're, we've got all these choices. So we all have this sort of consciousness. There's, uh, you look at the tail. Imagine that tied to the womb. It's the one point of home. It's the consciousness. It's the spirit of life. But we're exposed. And when we actually open up and uh, we'll be going through the chakras of this, so when you've got enlightenment, when you've got the enlightenment, you suddenly got this freedom, you've got all these choices, and there you have the multi-headed naga. Is, uh, it really represents that uh, freedom. Uh, let's go on to this other character, the um, Chthonic serpent, uh, one that coils, two serpents there, coiled around the trees. Some people say, oh, the tree of life. And in a lot of the symbolism, and even in the Kundalini symbolism, the snakes are often in pairs. And we can debate, why is there a pair? A lot of people say, ah, it's, the, it's a past karma, future karma. It's the good, it's the bad. Uh, it's, um, it's, it's good, it's evil. But for some reason, we seem to determine the two snakes as being polarities rather than something woven together. And when we talk of polarities, we're actually doing the separating. We're trying to unravel the snakes. And I, somehow, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't believe in divisions. I try and avoid divisions. I might speak it in my language about divisions, but I think we really harm ourselves and create biases because, oh, well, I'm on this side. I have nothing to do with the other side. Uh, so I'm not so good on believing in uh, the, the good and the bad and the heaven and the hell. 
I'll, I'll come back to this when I talk a little bit about the Kundalini's. Another thing about uh, snakes is uh, the male penis, of course, is symbolized by a snake uh, of the penis rising into an awakening. And I got this lovely picture. That's actually uh, a penis snake from South, <laughs> uh, South America. So they, they sort of actually exist. Um, but the, even though I'm talking about the symbolism of the penis, a lot of the snakes in stories, they become feminine often. And the, one of the feminine ones is the main tradition of the vision serpent. I think the vision serpent is, is uh, something that is female. And the tra translation of this jaw snake and rising, I think, is a little bit connected to the dragon nose I was mentioning in astrology. It's the path from inner consciousness or our inner earth and rising up and let's see if we got that. See, though that we got the helix, the DNA. Now that look at that, that's two snakes that's in our DNA, rising up. And the discovery of this, the illumination, the discovery of the infinity of this, and the acquiring spirituality. Now I'm going to spend a few moments, I think, talking about the Kundalini, but I'm going to go and have a look at your comments to see uh, what's happening there. Uh, how are you doing? What we got? Uh, no extra comments yet. Okay, we'll press on. I hope you're fascinated by this. This is a longer one than usual. This is another subject, I must admit, that I'm going to have to, in future, split it up into two, maybe three or four. But anyway, talking about Kundalini, which I'm not a Reiki person, so I can only spend a few seconds on this, but this is a session itself. Kundalini, a goddess described as a sleeping serpent, serpent that's uh, coiled up. What's that one? Oh, no, that's not, that's irrelevant, I think. Um, three and a half times the base of the spine chakra. Do I have some Kundalini uh, pictures? I'll probably do a bit later on. No, I haven't got uh, any lined up. But from the word Kundala, meaning coiled, and in Hindu, it seems to be linked to Hindu, am I right or wrong, or Buddhist? Seems to be linked somehow as if it was brought down through Persian, maybe Babylonian, and the Babylonian tradition through the northern shamans. But this whole journey, is, and this is what I'm trying to represent, I suppose, through the stories, is from the coiled snake and I'm coiling into spiritual maturation. And there you got the symbol of the snakes uh, around a staff and then crossing over each other seven times. What we, uh, I'm kind of getting confused on my, well, this is something I'm going to move on to. The seven chakra points, yes, I'll move that. Anyway, the whole point being that's being taught with the Kundalini, that when we're fully enlightened, we unwind into the life force. So symbolically, the serpent being considered as a power beneath the earth, and it makes helps to make the plants grow. Well, we need the water to make the plants grow, don't we? And... Uh, in the west, the dragon snakes and serpents, we recognize them as symbols of fire. The east, the dragon snakes and serpents as symbols of water. 
But let's consider, looking at this picture, considering dragon snakes and serpents being called upon to bring us rain. Now, there is the Irish story of, as I've mentioned, about the inborn creation of rivers and the heat of the rivers with the sun and the extra days, the daylight. The rivers get warmer, it creates cloud and rains. And eventually, uh, a lot of these rivers have stories of little girls that are out harvesting the Shannon is hazelnuts. Well, that's not really an inbox story. That's a mystery one because that would have been a harvest story. But somehow they get caught up into the flooding of the river, giving birth, and they're taken out to the sea. And eventually they become goddesses, like the white snake I was talking earlier, that have a dream of floating and cutting out these rivers and by doing so evolve into goddesses that lift them out into clouds and then become the rain and they fertilize the earth. So let's go to the caduceus, snake around the pole uh, from the tree of life symbol. Um, and I think uh, a lot of the serpent symbols to recognize and pay attention to is of the tree of life. And we might say it's a, a goddess symbol and the tree of life being a forerunner of the symbol of the caduceus. But look at that, that's a symbol of healing, a symbol of medicine. And more importantly, as well as the healing, a symbol of truth, a symbol of oath. Now in classical writings, we have it claims that Hermes inherited the spirit of the Caduceus, Caduceus, and it to him it became a conductor of souls. So he was really taking control of that. And through his magic staff, and I have some lovely pictures of his magic staff, but they haven't appeared, which is a shame. Um, anyway, I said that he could raise the dead from Hades. But this to the uh, Greeks and the Egyptians and many other cultures, the serpents were symbols of eternity. Now let's consider the snake here. There's a snake shedding its old skin. And I often use that symbol as a reference to people who are stuck into a way of life, that they live a life according to being told what to do and they lose their voice. But look at this symbol, there's the shedding snake shedding that decayed skin and celebrating and like a rebirth vibrant reborn and when we pass on you know uh, eventually we get reborn enough times so we are a body and water and uh, when we pass on we're more water than we are body and what happens is is the water flows from ourselves It'll hit an underground stream like this. And what happens is what was part of us, what was part of our temple, body temple, it doesn't, it isn't destroyed. It doesn't go away. It just becomes something else. And so our water leaves our body, becomes part of the underworld, join the underground stream, underground river, and then eventually evaporate into, we become these lovely clouds, I suppose. And then when they fall as rain showers, 
And through doing so, it's that point when the water serpent within us becomes free. Now, we don't have to pass on to do this. It's really having that confidence within ourselves to not be tied totally into that temple and being told how to look after the temple, being told where to place it, what to do with it, what to make with it, follow orders, follow control. Let the water serpent within us become free. And perhaps if our carcass rejoins the earth, the heat de decomposes it to rejoin the soil. Soil feeds the roots, snakes of the trees and plants. And a fire serpent, there's someone's sculpture from, I don't think it was a sculpture. I think, I'm not sure if that was a sculpture or the way that a fallen tree rotted, but there we go. There's the fire serpent within us set free. Now, thinking of the, um, I'm thinking of the stories of the Tour de Donan and how when the um, Malaysians came along and they had this deal at the Tour de Donan and then went underground, brought this up in the Waterloo, didn't I, Waterloo session, and uh, talking the underground. That's almost like a snake behavior because there they are among the roots and they're responsible among the roots, among the water to provide the fertility and the crops. They become the fey world, the fairies. The she and a lot of the she stories are connected with water and the traveling through the water. That's amazing the integration between the serpent stories related to water, the fey world, and the she, and how this is, all makes itself present through the trees, through our protection, through our herbs, through our health, through our food. So there's the snake energy coming out through the fey world. Now, some of this, uh, I talked about the Doida being very serpenty in the story, but this seems to change in our minds. You know, why are our minds actually changed into a thought of serpenty being evil and destructive? I'm thinking now of the medieval saints who were like the sails people of scribing, they were men, weren't they? And they, they created gospel scripture and the scriptures tended to have sentences that started with these serpents, as if it's to pay attention, you know, and uh, almost like fear-mongering just through the scribing. You're gonna follow our book because our books have got the stories as they're presented by the spirit of God and all that type of stuff and claiming to proclaim that their books are powerful. They're all powerful. But what if we continue to allow the guiding voices of our sensory serpents that's within us? So why were these early medieval saints banishing the snakes and claiming that their powers and promise of eternal life were more paradise than those offered by the devilish snakes. Their eternity, from there on, from medieval times, was the promise of a light heaven. So there we go, we go to heaven, we get a harp, and certainly not a dark underworld of eternity, flames, and all the rest of it. Were they selling us a rebranded water serpent in the clouds rather than the fire serpent that 
gives life through the roots. And then as I brought up the multi-headed nagas that resided in the underwater lakes, and it was their offspring in these stories, very much like I was saying about the Irish rivers. These are stories that have been passed along through the continents, through tribes, and even the Naga's offsprings are said to have created the rivers that evaporated into the clouds and fell as rain, as some of us are experiencing in Ireland today. And so even in Greece, we have the echidna, a half woman, half serpent, and her offspring were of dragons who also created rivers and rivers again that evaporated and bring that back again, cause the rain. And uh, so with rain, I said, came the wisdom, knowledge, water, songs, our secrets. It's the water. Is it the water? Is it the water in Ireland that is the reason that uh, it's a country of land of, I dare I say, saints, but certainly of scholars, certainly of storytellers. Can we blame the storytelling from those who look into their heart, look into the coil of their serpents? And it's the water, it's the rain that brings us the stories. So there we have the snake realm uh, as a sort of a, a secret guardianship of folklore. Now, I haven't got any more pictures because I didn't have any more time, but uh, I'm thinking of a story of Columkeel who when he left Ireland and became Columba, recognized as Columba eventually through stories uh, in Scotland. And he was making peace with the Picts, so he had to go east. And as he was going east, he came across the Loch Ness Monster. Another time, the Loch Ness Monster was a real raging serpent, and anybody who came close, gobble, gobble, gobble. He had a diet of humans, was a very confident and raging serpent that just ate people. So nobody could get close, but Columba, as he was then, Columkill, they jumped on a boat, went out to see the serpent to have a chat with him. And he said, you know, you can't go around eating people. And he obviously has some sort of magic staff that he waved and that enchanted the serpent. That, that storyteller stuff, of course. But after the visit by Columkill, uh, after Columba, it's said that the loveless monsters suddenly became shy. And that's why all the visitors since Columba's day never see this Loch Ness Monster, too shy to approach uh, the humans. So, how are we doing? Anybody else got anything more to say there? There's Donna, got a few words. Um, there's some pad <laughs> Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed that one. Uh, Favourite cartoon, it is. I, I, any excuse for me to put that up? Kendalini Hindu, thank you for the reminder. As I say, I'm not... Uh, I, I recognize the symbolism being what I pick up from the local stories here. So any more comments about that and your understanding of the Kundalini of the coiled snake and its movement up through our chakras until that crown point where we get that enlightenment, where we just release our denial. It's really releasing our denial of being part of nature. And we suddenly got this wisdom and awareness. Where does that come from? Where does that come from? This is what we were born with, North Node, as I mentioned uh, kind of earlier. Uh, 
what else can I say uh, on this? Um, well, I think uh, I can start closing this. And I hope you're, you haven't been enchanted in believing that you're in a snake, your Kundalini serpent, that uh, is there to cause you rage, that you go ahead and eat people, and that the serpent is evil and is bad. And I hope that no saint or preacher has caused your inner serpent to become shy either. Don't allow that serpent within to become shy. Don't allow it to be raging. Allow it to be, allow you to be, allow you to be in the balance with all the life that's around. And also remember, 10% of the snakes in the whole of the variety of snakes, only 10% carry the venom and the venom carriers are the most shy of humans anyway. So be confident that you are one of the 90% of the snakes, that your inner coiled snake is of the 90% that is harmless, but also essential. So let your own inner Kundalini serpent rise, or your own serpent or dragon or snake, or connection to the womb, your south node, allow it to rise up to the destiny of the North Node that you deserve with the choices. And through that, the understanding, like I was saying about the snake and its tail, the cyclical pattern of from hibernation into the light and back into hibernation, all that regeneration and all of this cycle is really the pattern of sanctuary and the, the main home womb of all these Sunday sessions is the idea that you have sanctuary. And I, may, and I say the preference being the tree sanctuary, or at least the garden sanctuary, some place that you can return home and allow that serpent to rise and you got the wisdom, the imagination, the solving of problems. As I say, it's a symbol of healing. When we understand that our ability of carrying venom is not a venom of poison, it's a venom of caring, healing, regenerating, problem solving, and that is very powerful. We dissolve our denial of being of nature. We grow closely to life, everything on earth, and we can always awaken. We know how to awaken ourselves from sanctuary to that serpent within. I believe, and I hope you do. I'm getting like a preacher on this one. <coughs> Excuse me that we can actually revere the symbol of the snake, the serpent, the dragon, if you prefer, towards healing and regenerative and wisdom interpretation. And I think that through doing so, our attention, contemplation, our dreams and practice, the things that we do, the things of our destiny, the things of our North Node, as I mentioned, these are all the things that we choose outside of our sanctuary, outside of our womb, outside of our south node. Serpents, gods and goddesses, they never die. They only transform into something else and something more wonderful. The white snake born out of the womb, creating the river, and then with that dream transforms into the goddess that is of the clouds and is of the life force. We can forever transform like that. And I, it sounds like I'm sort of almost saying to people, okay, your time is up, uh, pass away. No, do that within yourself. The, this is 
where there's a wonderful wisdom of purity. So with this, carrying the serpent symbol, we're no longer looking for beginnings and ends. We're not looking for acquisition. We become part of circles. We become part of spirals. We're not part of the linear straight line. That's what our egos do. We have straight lines. Blinkers on, no choices. And by doing so, be being part of the circles and part of the spirals, I believe that we cannot be told what to do, we cannot be calibrated, we cannot be calculated, and we certainly cannot be controlled. And by doing so, there we are. We're, we have the multi-head uh, heads of freedom. Uh, we are life, we are love, and we are affinity. So that, my friends, is my Dragon Serpents and Snake session for you today. So thank you for watching, listening, though it was late, and uh, commenting, uh, anything else uh, for you to say. Oh boy, there's a lot here. Uh, thank you for another wonderful session. I've often wondered the story of Eden and Adam and Eve. <laughs> I think I could do a whole session of the Adam and Eve on that. I, I'm going um, I'm going when I finish this session, I'm gonna answer this one a bit further, Chandia. Thanks very much for that. And uh fascinating. I'm glad you're finding it fascinating. This is a long one. Next time I'll make it into four and go to these in a, a little bit calmer uh in more depth. But thank you for commenting. And uh this is where I go on to the uh officialdom, and uh this is um going out live through Facebook. Uh, through the Karakori Cottage page. So uh, please join our Karakori Sessions Facebook group. If, and for those of you looking uh, from YouTube, we're on the Karakori Journal channel on YouTube. And you can even listen to the audio versions, which I'm nearly caught up with on Spotify if you search for Tree Sanctuary, so you can hear me rapping away in, in the background. And uh, then the Sunday Sessions, you can see what's going on. I have the website, karakrorycottage.com. You can go to the tab Sunday sessions there. And as I have been saying, the uh, Labyrinth Gardens and the sessions, um, I'm not personally charges for courses and for individual consultations, that sort of thing. I find that messy. I try to get, keep going, keep this going by donations. So there's always plans to do. There's always maintenance, there's always things breaking like fork handles and stuff. And even these Sunday sessions, I'm trying to improve the quality of presenting this forwards. I hope that they went okay, but I am doing this on limited equipment. So that's the fundraiser. So let's move on quickly for that. Any support from that uh, uh, is very, very uh, welcome. Uh, so thank you very much uh, for that. Now, coming up, I haven't done the banners for this this week, but next week, 19th of July, I broke up the Orm story that went on and on last March. It's in four parts now. So I'm doing one of the parts, which is the Ballymore Bard story. And what I'm doing with that one is I start with the Book of Ballymore, which was, um, it, it was, what were the word? It was not contracted, but or ordered, whatever it was. Uh, it, it was go ahead and do it in the scriptorium. There's your scriptorium. Go and write the book of Ballymalt. And there is a very defined 
interpretation of that time, late medieval interpretation of the Orm, and even extra symbols were added on. So I'm going into some of the stories that led up to the book of Ballymote, some of the traditions, some of the stories, uh, myth stories, and even a bit, well, what happened after the book of Ballymote came out? So I'm going into that side of Orm uh, next week. Then the 26th of July, uh, it's traditionally Garland Sunday in some places in Ireland, the last Sunday of July. It's the start of a bunch of Lunasa celebrations. And there's not going to be a Garland Sunday here in Cache, as it usually is. And I don't think there's going to be any climbing up uh, the Reek uh, um, uh, in Westport. Uh, uh, there isn't a uh, Crowpatrick. That's uh, the last I think of the word Crowpatrick. I always think of it as uh, Crowlure or the Reek. Anyway, uh, those high points, there's some high mountains. I'm going into the Garland Sunday stories uh, that uh, might fascinate you. In Garland Sunday here, there were baby shows and dog shows. I'm going to go into the origin, fascinating origin of why they have baby shows and dog shows. Tomorrow, I will be back with Sunday sessions. It's our very informal one at six o'clock, questions and answers. So do uh, check on that. I'll give you, uh, have one more look at uh, your comments there. I have been going on for ages, I know. So um, all I can uh, certainly thank you so much uh, for watching uh, Sunday sessions here. Uh, please keep commenting, even uh, uh, after I've gone away, uh, after you watch this, watching this as an archive please keep the comments going I'll, I'll keep a look at it enjoy a safe week and uh a week of wonder allowing that coil snake to come out and boom we got some lovely days coming up i believe next weekend so allow yourself to uncoil into that and celebrate so until tomorrow or next sunday play well keep safe bye <laughs>